I have a tough question for you. What if we stopped having meetings altogether? (laughs) Yes, I said it. No meetings. And then you say, Debbie, you're crazy. (laughs) We need those meetings to make sure we are on task. We use meetings to solve problems. We need status updates. We need meetings, meetings, meetings. Now, (laughs) don't take me literally. Of course, we do need to bring people together. But I ask you, are all meetings necessary? Now, I come from the operations part of work, and I know that we have to have stand-up meetings. Sometimes we have huddles. Sometimes in the lean world, we have tier one, tier two, tier three meetings to assure that everybody is lockstep around the priorities for the day, the week, and the month. But I wonder, is that put in place because some organizations have grown so big and outgrown their ability to communicate, to resolve issues? and really trust each other, for which we have to force people to come together to resolve the issues. I know I've been asking you a lot of questions and asking you to think differently, but my conversation with Ron LaPointe is all about the trust and the performance and the health of the organization and how people work together and resolve issues. So I would ask that you have an open mind and think about Do we really need the meetings or do we really need to build a high-performance, healthy culture amongst our employees? Let's listen. I would just say the caring, the trust building, the time with the team, the work together is to drive results. There is no shortcut. So if you want a team that can adapt to pandemics, that can adapt to market changes, that can be ready to be responsive and come together and make changes when they need to be made, you need a team that has each other's back, that cares about each other, that's there for each other, that trust each other. Most of the organizations I work with improve that level. So one measurement of trust, and the CEO sets the pace for this, but how quickly are issues resolved between team members around the team? If an issue comes up and we talk about it next month at a meeting, or we talk about it next quarter at the offsite or next year, right? that's a very slow response time. If it's done immediately or within 24 hours, that's an excellent level of issue resolution and timing that shows me that team is healthy and working together well. Welcome to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. I'm Deb Coviello, and as the Drop-In CEO, I drop into businesses and assume the CEO role to enhance the human element and increase the results they achieve. This podcast is about bringing you conversations with expert guests who have achieved their greatest results built on a strong foundation of purpose, values, and elevating people. If you're a business leader, entrepreneur, or even just getting started in business, join us as we build the skills you need to achieve your goals. Hello, I am Deb Coviello, founder of The Drop-In CEO, and I want to thank you for joining us on another amazing episode of the podcast. I am sincerely grateful. Week after week, I speak to amazing leaders, and I get to share their insights and inspiration with you, and I do hope you love this program, and if you do, please subscribe, rate, review, tell others. I sincerely appreciate the community that we're building, and just please know 
We are here to help the C-suite leaders of today and tomorrow navigate their challenges and reach their career goals. So it is my amazing pleasure to introduce this guest that I was introduced to, Ram LaPlante. Ram is a business coach and advisor to CEOs, leadership teams, and boards. His proven process of strategic thinking execution planning and leadership development helps CEOs get from vision to results. I'm sincerely grateful to have this conversation with you, Ron. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Deb. Thanks for having me today. So the reason why I thought this was so interesting, I think he, Ron and I, serve as the same group of people. We are sincerely passionate to be able to help C-suite leaders achieve their greatest results. I think there's a lot of common things about our philosophy about, yes, to evolve them, but also the people around them. It's so important for which I serve the C-suite leaders of today and tomorrow, and I just sincerely appreciate the work he is doing on the similar front. So, Ron, please, I know you've got an amazing story, things about your family, but share a bit about yourself personally and how you got to the work that you're doing now. Sure. Thanks, Deb. I'd love to. Born in Detroit and born to a couple of parents that were hardworking folks. My dad was a blue collar guy, so we weren't around business owners or business people. And so I went to school to be an engineer. I was good in math and science. And they said, you should go be an engineer. And I really enjoyed that work. And coming from Detroit, the place to be is in the automotive companies. And so I got my first job with Ford Motor Company. And my dad was very proud. He felt like he'd hit the Super Bowl World Series all in one with his son being part of the big three. And I found something interesting when I was there. Great opportunity, great place to start a career. However, I didn't fit. I didn't know why I didn't fit. Culture wasn't really a word back then, but I just knew that it wasn't for me. And so I left. I went to a 300-person organization where I could quickly lead teams, lead projects, ended up being involved in sales, and all of a sudden was around the whole sort of life cycle of customers and clients and really loved that work and found that I was better at that than I was as an engineer. (laughs) So really focused on management, leadership. And at 27, I was recruited from that company to be vice president of a 500-person organization where I sort of got my MBA. The CEO at the time then said I was getting my MBA with the School of Hard Knocks. And so first time I really worked with a P&L statement, a balance sheet, things like that. So wonderful breaks, very fortunate to have those young and early. And then I made the most of them. So my wife and I, we've got four great kids. She's been super supportive. She's a career person. And so we managed through me running a company for someone else, leading a company, and eventually the entrepreneurial bug bit me. So I was about 31 years old, realized I was enjoying running a team. Now I was now the the president of this company. We'd done a couple of mergers and transactions. So I had that piece of experience and decided that it was time for me to do something on my own. So started a company and since then have been involved with nine different companies as CEO and founder of six of those. We've done some acquisitions. I've had some really big exits and, and wonderful successes, and but more interestingly, some big failures. And what I've learned through that, I've had three multi-million dollar failures where I lost my money, some investor money. And what I realized was no matter how smart I thought I was or how good the idea was as the CEO, it mattered what the team was and how I put that team together and how I took care of that team. 
That's what drove the success of the wins. And that's frankly what drove the failures and the losses. And so a few years ago, decided to start sharing my experiences and the tools that I picked up along the way and the process that I use with other CEOs. So that's an amazing journey. And I feel a lot of similarities. I too, I went into engineering. Actually, my father at the time says, don't go into engineering. It's a rough thing, but it's one of those things. Yes, it's a rough curriculum. It is tough being an engineer because you have to dot your I's and cross your T's. But at the end of the day, it is a great way to at least build a foundation of critical thinking, decision-making, problem-solving, et cetera. But I too, (laughs) well, I continue to leverage a mindset of problem solving, asking questions. Why are we doing it this way? Could we do things a little bit better or getting people to not have to work so hard? It's foundational to my leadership. I too, along the way said, you know, there's smarter engineers around me than I. I can't solve the problems anymore. What can I do to elevate the team to remove their barriers, help them unleash their potential so we can achieve the greater good? Because when you try to do it yourself and be the firefighter, that can be one's demise. So I too have shared a similar journey. But let's go into it because I know you're so passionate about capitalizing on the strengths of teams and why building a strong leadership. Let's start with the positives. And you said this was what led to some of the wins that you realize as your own owner. Let's go there because I want people to really focus in on that and maybe have some takeaways from this. Many years ago, I think it was 2010 or so, was the first time I was exposed to the Clifton Strengths Finder. And so the Strengths Finder, it was, it was actually a book at the time. Prior to that, I'd been managing people to help them improve their weaknesses. And so when the Strengths Finder really showed me and my team a different way of saying, hey, we all naturally do things that we get energy from, that we are excited about, and that we're good at, what if we spent more time doing those things? And so that strength-based approach has led me, I'm certified in Clifton Strengths now and all that good stuff, but really that's the lens I go into it with the team. So most of my clients want me to fix their people. They say, can you come in and the team's not quite right. Can you fix us up, train us up, whatever, and coach us up? And they're looking at what's not working. And so obviously it's not this simple, but at a high level, we start to look at the strengths. We start to realize where are the initiatives or programs or areas of the business that aren't underperforming and and how can we leverage our strengths to make a change there? And getting people and that team to really emphasize and encourage each other through their strengths lens as opposed to what's not working well. So that's one piece. And the other one is the, the sort of the health of the team. So we've probably heard from Patrick Lencioni, the most famous authors who wrote Five Dysfunctions of a Team. But if you take those dysfunctions, the negative behaviors, because it's easy to see those dysfunctions, right? It's easy to see when something's not working. It's easier to see that than when something is working. Looking at the cohesive team, if that's the goal, what does that look like? How do you measure that? How do you really know as a CEO or a member of the team if you guys are healthy or not? That's been the main emphasis of my work to say, we're going to grow your business and we're going to achieve your financial results through growing that team, that team health. So I love what you focus on. And for those of you listening, if you haven't read these classics, the Strength Finder book, I've got the same book he was talking about, this dysfunctional team and how to move them forward. You got to read these things. They are fundamental to kind of change your mindset into just what he's talking about. Focus on the strengths. And I talk about in my work, the CEO's compass, your guide to get back on track is when we judge performance, performance people normally look at is the results, the bottom line profitability, 
the top line growth, your quality, your service performance. And I say nay to that. I say, talk about the capability for people to achieve the purpose of your business. And then you look at their capability and their capacity, even their confidence in what they're doing and how can you coach and close those gaps. Once you close those gaps, build on their strengths, not their weaknesses, you start to see that performance come. You don't have to teach them new tricks. It's closing those gaps in the individual performance. Those are the leading indicators. So I so appreciate what you do. But let's just go a little bit deeper into this. So I understand what you do. But maybe tell us a bit about a situation where maybe you were told to fix the team, but through some of your assessment, and what were some of the changes you helped make happen? And then what was the result? I mean, did you move people around into different roles? What was it that magic thing that all of a sudden got a team to being that strong team, that high performing team? Well, I'll, I'll start with this really works. The work that I do and the work that many other good coaches do, it really requires the CEO to be committed to that work. The first thing I would say is if, if a CEO says, hey, can you come in and fix my team? I'd say no. I can't, but I can certainly help you do that. We can do that together. And so that's the spirit of the approach from the onset. And if they don't want to do that, then we just don't play. I'm not going to do that. So that's one way to sort of get at the core of this because the CEO, he or she really needs to work on themselves in the process of working on the team. And some folks, some of those CEOs are ready for that. They want that. They're thirsty for that. Many are not. You know, it's easy to say it's ego or pride, but I would just say people need to be ready. In my experience, when I was the CEO and I was having success, I thought I was the smartest guy in the room. I wasn't, but I thought I was. But when I was having the failures or challenges or just going through some rough patches, when I was really reflective on that, that's when it really, I was humbled enough to say, I don't have all the answers. I need some help. And that could be from external folks like a coach or my team. I need my team to help me through this, to help us through this. I don't have all the answers. When people have gotten to that point, I would say they're ready then to really embrace this concept of a healthy team. Again, your talking points resonate so much with some of the things I've talked about. Even in my book, the first chapter, I speak to that leader that is picking up the CEO's compass for the first time. And the first chapter, I say, it starts with you. Are you ready to lead? Are you the leader you want to be? How do you want to lead? What needs to change, if at any, before you go on with the rest of the book? Because it starts with you. And I actually tell the person to put down the book, spend some time with yourself. But I will tell you, in a recent assignment, I'm just starting an assignment with a CEO of a company. And they had the courage to ask for help because they knew inside things weren't right. They didn't know how to get beyond the challenge. But I think one of the biggest struggles for a leader is just pulling the trigger and bringing the person in because sometimes when they do, they're in crisis and things are really breaking. And I'm just curious for those clients that do find you and do bring you in, do they bring you in at the right time or at a time when it's too late and maybe they're in crisis and losing money? When do they bring you into the picture? So I am not a turnaround expert. So I don't, I don't necessarily go into a company in crisis and help them go through sort of the financial instruments and, and process. My clients are either of one or two profiles. They're either growing really fast and the, the wheels are starting to come off from a quality or culture perspective. So either internal or external quality. They feel like they're not quite on top of their game or they've got real measurements to show there's a weakness in what they're delivering, again, internally or externally. So that growth-based mode requires some changes. We can't do what got us here won't get us there. So 
that change gap is needed for the CEO and the leadership team. The other one could be similar or maybe had that historically, but now they're at a plateau. They're stuck. So they're not necessarily in crisis, but they've sort of hit their ceiling of complexity or they've hit their growth and they're, they're a little flat. And they're not quite sure why, or they do know why, but they won't take the actions required. So back to your earlier question, the teams that I work with, not because I ever go in targeting the removal of a leader. However, most within 12 to 18 months, the leadership team has changed. The members of the team has changed. So either someone has self-selected and left the team because the accountability has been ratcheted up by this process, or the CEO has made a decision, kind of finally made a decision to let someone go or make a different path with someone. Sometimes those people leave the leadership team is more of a demotion. So they, they're the right person for the organization, but the company's outgrown them. And that's a difficult conversation in and of itself. And so can we find a place for someone who's been with us for a long time, really dedicated and fits our culture, but is no longer serving the organization at the leadership role? Those are the types of things that happen very commonly. To add to that is like, what can one do respectfully to the individual who has provided value for some time? And do they still have a place in the organization? And I'm curious from your standpoint, do they still have a place in the organization, but maybe in a different function, maybe just as a subject matter expert, do you find in most cases they're gone? What have you seen? Well, actually, I've had good success if the culture fit is there. If it's truly a good culture fit, they're, they're a good person for the team but they're just not able to, whatever, their capacity isn't there. They've been given opportunities to train or improve or develop, and they just haven't gotten there. I would just say like this, we always give them a choice. And sometimes with respect and some dignity, the choice is to continue to be a part of this organization in a different way. And they take that choice and, and they do that. Sometimes they just, they can't handle that sort of demotion and, and that fall from the leadership team and they decide to leave, but they're given a choice if they're a good culture fit. I love what you said is giving them a choice because at the end of the day, if there's respect that ultimately there is a mutual agreement, either the person will perform in a new role and do just fine, or they will make the decision to move out. And I feel so bad though, for sometimes organizations that want changes on their team, but then they remove certain people without that respect. They simply just say, we're moving on. And that's it. And that leaves people unfulfilled and a bad taste. And, you know, I, I don't know about you, Deb, but I love change. Me too. <laughs> right? I love it. And I hate it too. <laughs> I don't love it when it's done to me. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I love it when I'm either driving the, the ship or, or a part of the change. And that's often what we do at the leadership team is we make decisions about our plans, our priorities, our goals. And then we make those changes to our people. And so we have to switch to a with our people approach. All challenging things, but it's what we need to do when the CEO realizes we have to make those changes. But we started touching on a topic of tough conversations. And I know you're passionate about how to have those tough conversations as well as building trust. What's your take on that? Yes. So I would say oftentimes, and now I live in the Midwest and as you do too now, there's this thing called Midwest nice. <laughs> have you heard that? I have. Yeah. So we want to be very kind to each other and not hurt feelings. And so not that that's not true in other areas, but there's a Midwest nice piece. And Brene Brown, another great author, has said, I saw her speak up from stage before the pandemic, her book, Dare to Lead, that clear is kind. 
So if we want to be kind to our people, our teammates, our organizations, we've got to be clear with them. That clarity sometimes is directness. Sometimes it is exactly what they need to hear, whether they want to or not. Doesn't mean we can be rude or mean or or thoughtless about it. And so having the ability to have a relationship with someone to a point where there's enough trust to be clear and direct is something that's earned. It's something we have, I believe, have to build and work on as leaders. And once we have that, we should use that. A lot of CEOs avoid those conversations. They want Billy or Susie, whoever the team member is, to figure it out on their own. They think they can read their mind. They probably struggle really hard to send out those telepathic messages, but they're just not being picked up. And then they get frustrated. And so there's a general malaise of frustration or they should know by now. And I ask them, if you're going to make a change to to a team member, will they be surprised? And if the answer is no, they're not going to be surprised. They know exactly what they're doing. And of course, when they actually have the conversation, those people are very surprised. They just haven't been told in a clear way before. Hints and innuendos and subtleties don't really work. And so the way to do that with trust is to, first of all, invest in those people to get the trust and build the trust. There's a lot of different ways to do that, but it starts by just caring about them and understanding a little bit of who they are, what their strengths are, what makes them tick, understanding a little bit about their families, or if they don't have families or hobbies. There's something, not because I worked at Ford Motor Company, but there's another great customer service author and speaker that talks about the Ford method. Have you heard of the Ford method? No, I haven't. Please go ahead. It's very simple. So I teach my kids this and any introverts that aren't comfortable going into a party or a networking event, which is actually, (laughs) but it's very simple. So Ford, family, talk to people about their family. Just ask about their family. Oh, the O of Ford is occupation. Talk about their job, what's going on, what's working well, what's not working well in their occupation. Recreation is the R. Very easy to talk about golf or sports or hobbies, whatever that is for them. And then the really trust-building different type of conversation is D, which is dreams. If you know what people really want, where they're going, what they want in their future, and you're their leader... You can help map out how they're going to get there through success of this business, through the things they're working on very hard to be productive for you. And you can align those goals, those dreams that they have individually with the vision for the organization. So that that's one simple technique that needs to take with your own voice and your own questions, of course, but it starts with the CEO really caring. If the CEO doesn't have time for that person, doesn't want to sit down with them and talk or go to lunch or dinner, they're not going to be able to build that same level of trust. And then the other part is the team-based trust is similar, but that's with the team. So if your leadership team is five people, six people, 12 people, whatever that is, that team needs time together. If everyone's doing their own thing, running a million different miles away or on Zoom calls like we are, we've got to be intentional about bringing them together and talking about the business. We can talk about team building topics, or we can just work on the business together as a team, which is my preference. One of the things you said, and it's a soft, soft and squishy word, but it's probably one of the most meaningful things that you said, in addition to the forward method of establishing trust and rapport, is the other four-letter word is care. Because so often we can put on airs like we'll have a company picnic, we will have company meetings, one-to-ones with each other, and it seems like we care because we're communicating. But unless we know somebody deeply or we've shared a moment 
just had a moment, a head nod, like, oh yeah, I know what you're talking about. Or, oh yeah, those kids, <laughs> they're lucky to have us, as we spoke about before. Truly caring is the difference between just executing tasks and getting a result to having their back and building a high performance team. I really, really care about that use word and attribute. This has been on for a long time, Deb. So I, I read Earl Nightingale's Lead the Field, or I listened to his audio tapes. He, that was from the 50s. So he was he was one of the pioneers in self-help and leadership development back with Earl Nightingale. And Earl had this bourbon and cigar-soaked voice. And I remember him saying, no one really cares how much you know unless they know how much you care. Right? It's been around forever. It's a bumper sticker in leadership for a long time. And I think people have gotten numb to it. It is absolutely true. Yeah, and it's so easy. If I talk to my audience, that is the aspiring leaders, they're doing their job really well, but they're in this hamster wheel of working, 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 trying to please, trying to get the results, trying to communicate their message. And at the end of the day, and I know this happened to me, you just the care is not in it. Yes, you have rapport, you know a little bit about people, but you're just doing a transaction until you finally got to the place of leadership. Caring is one of the most important tools in your toolbox. From there, you build the trust. You have the back, you help the people, and they will help you. I know somebody on my team right now, they are not feeling well. Some of their items they want to deliver are behind, but you know what? I care about them to feel better, and the items will come because they have my back and they will support me. So really, really important concept. I was just going to say to anyone who's listening that thinks that we're full of something, uh, I would just say the the caring, the trust building, the time with the team, the work together is to drive results. There is no shortcut. So if you want a team that can adapt to pandemics, that can adapt to market changes, that can be ready to be responsive and come together and make changes when they need to be made, you need a team that has each other's back, that cares about each other, that's there for each other, that trusts each other. Most of the organizations I work with improve that level. So one measurement of trust, and the CEO sets the pace for this, but how quickly are issues resolved between team members around the team? If an issue comes up and we talk about it next month at a meeting, or we talk about it next quarter at the offsite or next year, that's a very slow response time. If it's done immediately or within 24 hours, that's an excellent level of issue resolution and, and timing that shows me that team is healthy and working together well. I really appreciate that because I have worked with large organizations, experienced that, but I love serving the small and medium-sized company because I see that whether it's their rapid fire on a Slack channel or when they come together in their meetings, everybody's accountable. Everybody reports out, what do you need? How can I help you? Let me meet with you after this meeting. And you see it. You just feel that you have the right culture. But I'm curious because we talked about strengths. You're passionate about strengths. In your journey, what did you find were your strengths that you had to finally embrace and forget about some of those weaknesses? What was it like for you? Well, I would just say I, I didn't forget about my weaknesses. What happened, though, was the process of StrengthsFinder validated what I already knew. So my number one strength is futuristic. And my wife will tell you, I spend more time living in the future than I do right now. And so I have to work on being in the now and the present a bit more. But being futuristic as a business owner and entrepreneur is a great asset. I think about the future. I see things in terms of quarters from now or years from now, which is a great benefit to a team. But if I'm alone in that, and I'm always thinking about the future and the next thing, the thing that's important today to ship to our clients today or to take care of today can get minimized. 
And so I need the team around me that appreciates the future and is working toward the future with me, but is handling the day to day to day. So that's one aspect of that. And the other one is trying to call activator. Activator basically means I like to come in, get stuff going, get people excited, hopefully use all my powers of persuasion to get them going in a direction and then get out of the way. And so the powerful part of Activator is I use this all the time with my clients. I go in and we have meetings and workshops and planning sessions and we get them excited and activated. What I found was I needed to build tools for myself and for them to keep that energy going and sustain that energy. I so agree. I'm thinking we are parallel. I should take that strength finder test again. I mean, I used to be the great organizer, consensus builder, but it was all part of facilitating and moving things forward. But tell you, since I've been in my business, I see things people can't see. (laughs) I'm trying to articulate where the future is. I am focused on it and I love starting. I love stirring up the hornet's nest, but it is a beautiful thing when the team owns it and they're moving along and then they say, hey, Deb, can we show you something, what we're doing? Then you know you've transitioned that ownership and that high performance team to the team. And then I can just step away and help another great team. This has been an amazing interview. I am so excited. I mean, a lot of our work is similar. There are so many great CEOs out there that need our support, but I want to bring this to a close, but I want people to connect with you, get to know more about you. Are there any last closing thoughts you'd like to share with our listeners? Sure. Thank you, Deb. Yeah. So if you're interested in more, I have a lot of free tools and thoughts on my blog. It's Capricorn Leadership is the company. Capricorn because Muhammad Ali and Sir Isaac Newton and other great Capricorns out there were legends that inspired me. And when I was putting this business together, my wife thought that that might make a good name. I happened to share the birthday with Martin Luther King. So I grew up in that sort of auspicious shadow every January 15th. But CapricornLeadership.com has a blog. I post things every couple of weeks. And then there's tools embedded in there. So there's ways to scale your core values and your culture. There's ways to measure your team performance. There's ways to be have tougher conversations and, and really more effective, tough conversations. So all that's on my blog at Capricorn Leadership. And then, of course, on LinkedIn, Ram LaPointe, happy to connect with you and see if we can't either work together or at least give you some more tools and techniques out there. So those, and then one last thing I would say, just to give proper credit, the Ford method, the first time I heard that was from a gentleman named John DeJulius, who is a member of EO from Cleveland or or used to be a member of EO. The Customer Service Revolution is that book. You are full of so many amazing resources, insights. I am grateful to have been introduced to you through the great Tom Schwab, who has presented so many amazing guests. But the work you do is very helpful. I've been inspired. And I just want to wish you continued success. And thank you so much. Thank you, Deb. Have a great day. Thank you for listening to the Drop-In CEO Podcast. My new book, The CEO's Compass, will change the way you think about leadership navigate rapid transformation and elevate the leaders of tomorrow. If you're feeling off track, the CEO's Compass Assessment will guide you to peace of mind in days, not months. You can learn more about the CEO's Compass by visiting my website at dropinceo.com. Now go out and lead, inspire, and achieve your goals.